Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the special series on the New Books Network that's about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, host of the series. Today, we'll be talking to Robert Samuels about his book, Teaching Writing, Rhetoric, and Reason at the Globalizing University, published by Routledge this year. My introductions of my guests have followed the pattern of flying overview of the work at hand, a flying review of themselves as scholars. In today's episode, I'm going to deviate from that pattern because the book we have here, Teaching, Writing, Rhetoric, and Reason at the Globalizing University, is a pattern breaker, and I would only be wrenching out of shape the arguments in the book and the aims of this podcast if I handled my introduction today as I have my introductions in the past. So I want to begin this episode of Scholarly Communication by running you, my listeners, through the reasoning undergirding Robert Samuel's book, and more specifically by giving you my rendition of the book's introduction, where Robert Samuels lays down the reasoning the book follows. This laying down develops in two stages. First, the problems we face, writing what we mean to write. And second, how the tenets of liberal globalism can help us write closer to what we mean to write. I'll take both of these on in brief so that we can then turn to teaching, writing, rhetoric, and reason at the Globalizing University and to Bob himself in order to build up this laid foundation, the arguments, and as many arguments as we can during the conversation. Okay, first, the occasion for the book and the purpose of the book. International students attending the writing courses on offer by universities in the U.S. face a problem and likewise pose a problem. They face the problem faced by anyone going to write for study or research purposes in a language not their first. And though really anyone at all going to write for study or research purposes faces a similar problem, the problem is exacerbated for the writer who must use a language he or she has not spoken from a very young age. The problem posed by international students is posed to the system of higher education in the U.S., and in particular to the composition courses routinely on offer at U.S. institutes of higher education. U.S. writing pedagogies were not originally designed for speakers of additional languages. This is one part of the problem. 
The other part is that writing teachers and writing scholars have decided to face the internationalization of writing instruction in various, uncoordinated, even countervailing ways. For instance, the organization College Composition and Communication have positioned themselves on the left of the political divide. The teachers and scholars who see themselves represented in CCC policy do not, for instance, teach grammar in their writing courses because the grammar of present-day English is both too inclusive and so irrelevant to the very many genres which students must write in, and because this grammar is too exclusive and so discriminatory of other grammars, whether these be based in marginalized socialects or in foreign languages. The CCC position, if I may simplify circumstances and just call it that, is just one among many taken up by today's teachers and scholars of writing. Nonetheless, it is an influential position, and it is the position which the book most closely addresses, and the end to which the position is addressed, and I quote, is this. I hope that everything in this book helps instructors of university and college writing courses to teach in a more confident and effective manner. Many of the topics discussed are highly charged, but it is important for us to be able to work through these difficult issues in an open and rational way. During a time of great change and uncertainty, the teaching of writing, reason, and critical analysis becomes even more essential. Now to the second stage in Robert Samuel's reasoning, the principal arguments of the book. It would be inaccurate to say that the book takes up the position opposite to the CCC position, because the opposite position is, again simplifying, epitomized by right-wing ideology. Indeed, the book does not steer a middle ground either, since that would simply mean taking up a politically centrist position and seeking compromise between the far ends. The book treads new ground and proposes that we writing teachers and we writing scholars and anyone else working in higher education recognize and adopt the tenets of liberal globalism. When we view the world along the left-center-right political spectrum, globalization or universality come under attack and can only be defended. When we shift our view to a philosophically modern one, however, globalization and universality is good, or at least the best good which humanity has so far been able to devise. Modernity, in all its guises, receives its earliest, fullest expression in the work of René Descartes. Modern humans are all equal because, among all of us, reason is equally distributed. In a sense, that's crazy, because no one uses reason in the same way or to the same effect, and everyone uses differentials of power and accesses of emotion in as many ways as there are people. But Descartes' point is not that people have transformed during the passage of time, but rather that a new idea can help our long-given humanists come closer to achieving something besides strife and degradation and poverty and all the rest of it. By the power of reason, the modern subject can lift itself free of pre-modern authorities like church or king. The act is unnatural, or better said, ideal, because indeed the act of reason over authority or over emotion is an act which enforces a way of being which is artificial. But the effect is to cancel out the constrictive effects of individuality and society and tradition, even language itself, and then so enable our very selves to experience life in the presence of equality, universality, neutrality, and objectivity. 
Now, I formulate this idea so carefully, experience life in the presence of, because our lives, whether lived according to current political ideologies or according to liberal globalism, will never actually be equal, universal, neutral, and objective. However, our common pursuit of such ideals does improve real conditions and does indeed bring more people's lives more in touch with equality and universality and neutrality and objectivity. These are the necessary but impossible ideals of the modern subject. Grammar has a big role to play in liberal globalism or in the area of liberal globalism called academic discourse. This point is really the main point of the book, and certainly the point addressing the problems which occasioned Robert Samuels, uh, occasioned Robert Samuels to write it. Grammar is the formal counterpart to the scientific method, just as the scientific method is the functional counterpart to what rhetoricians call logos and what the rest of us simply call reason. Grammar, too, is artificial. Grammar is objective and neutral and universal and artificial. That's what makes grammar the perfect learning opportunity for young people striving to attain the ideals of liberal globalism. In fact, when we engage in the workings of grammar, we all become as equal as we can hope to become. Because when grammar is used well, we can communicate any idea to anyone. Now, it is true such artificiality as obtains in the project of academic discourse does place demands on a person. And it is precisely here that protest has erupted. To return to the position of the CCC, the demands which grammar places are being interpreted as the demands of the dominant class. Grammar is called racist. Teaching science is called indoctrination. And universality is called anti-diversity. But these claims are the claims of the left. Other politically charged claims can be cited and are cited in the book from the center and from the right. However, the liberal globalist position proposes just those same ideals which are credited to Descartes, namely equality, universality, neutrality, and objectivity. And liberal globalism maintains that these are necessary ideals to the achievement of everything we humans can hope to achieve in the way of a good life. But also, liberal globalism maintains that these ideals are impossible. That is, are such a test of our human capabilities, are such an overcoming of so many of our inherent responses to the world and to ourselves, that we must truly learn to strive for the liberal globalist ideals. Writing is one such means to strive, because writing provides the logical resources for the critical analysis of our thoughts, of our feelings, of our social and political doings, and of our writing. Teaching grammar is essential to our students' careers in making things better in the world. Okay, that's the intro. Let's begin today's episode. Robert Samuels and Writing Rhetoric and Reason. Bob, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thank you for such an extensive uh, introduction. Okay, right. Um, The point, again, was so that we can move in to um, what's actually happening in the book so that we've got an established ground and... I know that the teaching of grammar is uh, not only close to your heart, but also a well-reasoned position, and I hope that I've established some of that, but I would like to also hear from your own view if, let's say, the basic reasoning of the book, anything was left out so far. Well, I just wanted to add the context. Um, I was teaching upper division writing at University of California, Santa Barbara, and I had a class during the summer, a writing about film class. And um, for the first time, all of my students were from uh, mainland China. And there was a few um, non, 
student students who were not from China, but they dropped out of the class because they realized everyone was basically um, from another country, and there was a lot of um, language and communication issues right from the start. And so I thought that was a you know very interesting experience. The university wants more international students because they pay more and they don't get financial aid. And so it was a way of trying to make up for um, public reductions in funding for higher education. And this has gone on all over the world, especially in the United States. And so then um, one of the things I encountered was for the first time, I really had a lot of students who had basically, you know, a difficulty expressing themselves, you know, both in written form and, and speaking and, and actually understanding you know, what I was saying, you know, to such a great extent. And so I started to interview them. And I realized many of them had previously taken um, writing courses. And a lot of them had received, you know, very high grades in their former writing classes, both at UCSB and at community college. And so I, you know, wanted to see how that was possible. And they told me that in their writing classes, they were informed that the most important thing is their ideas. And there wasn't that much attention paid to word choice or grammar or organization or more formal issues. And so um, I wanted to, you know, delve further into this issue. And I started to talk to various graduate student instructors and faculty. And I found a very common theme that people had really moved away from grading, well, teaching and assessing um, grammar and word choice and other kind of formal things that I thought were the foundations of writing classes. And, you know, doing more research and reading more on the topic, I really found this kind of uh, consistent ideology that the teaching of grammar um, is, or especially the assessment of grammar, is considered to be a form of uh, white supremacy or is racist, and also that it can't be done, that you can't teach grammar, and that it's menial labor, and it degrades the, um, debases kind of the faculty member and the profession. And so there is this very strong movement away from teaching grammar. And I think a lot of the issue is like how you teach grammar and like why do you teach grammar? Yeah. Um, and, and this real world uh, reference that you make as being your actual uh, you know, reason or occasion for getting started on this does bring in exactly those points of, yeah, I mean, why would somebody think that this is racist? That seems to be a leap, if you like. It's it's what you take up in your chapter on Inoue. And I wonder if maybe you could perhaps give that position in a word or two. Also, this represents, in a sense, the position that the CCC itself holds on uh, teaching of grammar, or at least standard English, if you like. Yeah, so Asao Inoue, he's the um, past president of the uh, four C's, um, the association we're talking about. And um, one of the things that he wrote about is when he was teaching at San Jose State, um, a lot of the students were failing the writing classes. It was taking them longer to graduate. Most of these students were um, recent immigrants or um, people of color. And so he you know, wanted to you know, find an alternative way of assessing them and grading them and teaching them. And um, he argues that basically imposing what they call um, standard American English um, is a form of oppression and it is a form of white supremacy. And then he extends the argument to even things like teaching 
neutrality or teaching a neutral perspective or objectivity or scientific reason um, are themselves, you know, products of white European culture. And so then they're inherently biased and inherently, you know, prejudiced and undermine the um, possibilities for um, students who don't come from the same culture or background. And so, you know, he's famous for coming up with this new way of grading people called grading contracts. He's one of the people that developed this, grading people more based on their effort or their, you know, and not necessarily um, assessing them for their ability to, you know, master certain skills, um, and especially in relationship to grammar and word choice and organization. Um, and so I think like the question is, does that do a dis- disservice to his students? Like, does it, do- one of the big issues I have is that he seems to, you know, he writes in the standard American English and yet he says it, it's not good for students to do that, that it oppresses them. And, and yet when he wants to communicate about this, he uses the same language that he says is oppressive. And um, people argue, oh, in order to protect the students and their identity, we shouldn't, you know, force them to conform to this shared academic discourse. And I believe it undermines their, um, if we don't teach this, it can hurt them in their other classes. They can get graded down. I mean, it will be hard for other teachers maybe to understand them and also for their professional life. So I think we do a great disservice if we don't teach these things. But it's become a very unpopular position to try to defend the teaching of grammar because it has become so highly politicized and so kind of there's a very divisive kind of ideological perspective that is often uh, taken by people who want to argue that it's oppressive to teach grammar. I wonder if that position isn't missing some of the basics of language for all of the pathos with which they approach their politics. Because if you think of a written form of language, the natural direction it takes is towards standardization. And every single form of uh, language that has found written form has always standardized at some point, or it's fragmentized. And all of this different fragments have either broken apart and fell and, and not been used anymore, or they've standardized themselves. I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, the history of, of Greek, of Latin, of English itself. I mean, from the 14th century up through the 18th century was a long period of standardization. And I suppose what I'm driving at is, what is Inoue's alternative? If he points to, let's say, the sociolects or the other languages that people are using, um, it's really a question of, well, what is the reach of those languages? And if it's a sociolect or a dialect, it may not be yet up to the task because uh, it takes usually at least a century, usually longer, for a language to be equipped enough to handle um, you know, things like modern science. Well, I think a lot of this also, you know, before him, you know, comes from the um, kind of famous manifesto that came out of the four C's, which is called the student's right to their own language, which I think is really just an interesting, you know, kind of paradox. Like, you know, language is something that is supposed to be shared. And one of the things I try to stress is that grammar is not just about correctness. It's really about communication, how to communicate effectively with others. And you need shared symbols and shared logic. And you can think of like grammar as kind of like the math of writing. You need like a shared system of how to connect things together and communicate those connections to other people. And so, you know, this declaration that students have the right to their own language, I think part of that 
is derived from this general social movement towards catering to the individual, especially to the individual student within education. And um, some of it started in the 60s and the students, you know, revolt against um, authority and the um, bureaucratic institutions. Um, some of it has to do with the self-esteem movement, the idea of catering to the individual, the parent catering to the child. And but I think you ask a very good question, like how is language going to be possible if we let people, you know, the, um, just produce their own language? I mean, because that's what you find, like, you know, in um psychiatric wards like people have their own language and their own understanding of things and you know it's impossible to have any group you know coming together or, or activity um i should say i used to i mean i have a phd in psychoanalysis i used to work at a psychiatric hospital and so i think of these things often in terms of um, psychoanalysis and of subjectivity and the relationship between language and um culture and so I think that this is not a very well thought out strategy, the idea that everyone should have their own language and that um, it's oppressive to try to come together to with a shared kind of language that we all like equally agree to submit to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I entirely see. And it comes out strongly in later chapters. For instance, your reading of Jurassic Park, the, the um, psychoanalytic uh, tradition, and, and to good use as well, I, uh, very convincing arguments there. Um, I suppose what I was also, and, and I agree, yes, I mean, it's a sort of alienation, isn't it, if you're uh, insisting that everyone take up their own way of speaking, uh, because you, the tendency is there that you might then just isolate everyone individually. Um, I was thinking on a linguistic level of, um, to criticize English for having standardized is to criticize written language, really, um, because there's... There's no other way forward for a written language that gets shared more and more and written down more and more. That's 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 what they do. <laughs> and it, it, it seems to, like the World Wide Web it was only possible because they had standard protocols. Right. And so, for example, yeah. And so language. Yeah. And, and the printing press, as you know, you would understand at first, you know, a lot of English language was not, you know, really punctuated consistently. And it was very, you know, unclear. And the printing press forced them to come up with, you know, a lot of different punctuation and a more standardized language than which allowed, you could say, for a spreading of literacy and a more equal playing field where it wasn't just the authorities who had who were literate or the elites that were literate, but more and more people had the opportunity to become literate. And part of this had to do with the standardization of the language, um, which also is important, like for the development of science and for the um, circulation of science. The, the need to have kind of a, a common kind of understanding and a shared discourse that allowed information to be distributed across a wide spectrum of the population. Are there any answers on the Inuit or the Four Seeds side to um, con- such, such let's say, foundational concerns as we're raising right now? Have you heard any arguments that address these points? So one of the big issues that I have with the current left, um, and I do think like social movements are really important, especially social movements on the left, that they help to expand who is included under democratic law and that progress is often made through like social demonstration and, and this type of politics. But often in order to um, have a politics of the left, you have to have strong group um, solidarity that is often built out of this highly kind of emotional identification. And so any challenge to that 
ideology is often um, attacked very quickly. And this is one reason why we have this debate, you know, the United States over cancel culture or political correctness um, at its extreme. It's a form of almost like religious shunning and censoring. And so whenever I've tried to engage in these topics with other people, they often have a very kind of emotional, aggressive response that um, basically you're being a racist and that um, you're a white male Eurocentric colonizer. And so it seems like there's this kind of either or, either you're on our side or against us. And so it's very hard to engage in any debate over these topics. And that's one of my concerns. And I tried to you know, present my book, so hopefully it could start a dialogue. But I think it is very difficult because there is often this very kind of divisive, um, kind of unreasonable uh, ideology and discourse that prevents communication from happening. Let's come to the the reasons behind behind what you're doing. I mean, your initial chapter starts off with, should we teach grammar? And I mean, it turns out to be a resounding yes, we should, which, which is no surprise. Um, you take the um, pragmatic, realistic view on things, as you call it. And um, I think it's probably useful if we just say, t- just take a moment here to say, well, what is it that we mean by grammar? You You give for example, three different possible readings, the traditional, the formal, and the functional grammars. I wonder if you could, in your own words, just say, well, where do you, how would you describe grammar? How would you define it for yourself? I think it's the the use of a shared logic, and especially a logic of like how different ideas relate to each other. And and so then it's fundamental to communication because you're trying to um, ideally communicate your ideas to another person. And so you have to also communicate how your ideas relate to each other and how they connect to each other. And so grammar often is the way to signal kind of the logic, structure, and order of your thoughts to another person. And so it's fundamentally um, rhetorical, but it's based on the need to communicate through a shared symbolic system. Okay. All right. So sounds more on the functional side, which would explain why also you say uh, in the first chapter there, when I'm teaching grammar, I'm not correcting mistakes, right? I'm teaching a, a way of thinking or to enable thinking, if you like. Does that sound about accurate? Yeah, that's part of it. So one of the things that I you know, want to look at is why do people say you can't teach grammar? I'm like, I think I've done it and I've done it like effectively, not always. And so, but the way I often teach it, and this is one of the issues is, um, you know, I, I teach some, you know, rules and we go over examples in class, but most of it's done on an individual basis. And what I do is I engage with students in a dialogue and I ask them like, what are you thinking at this point? Like, or what are you trying to do? And, or what do you think the rule is? And, and I realize often students have just internalized just basically the wrong idea. Like this is when you use a semicolon, this is when you use a comma, or this is how you connect ideas, or this is, you know, they've, they've internalized some shorthand thing or that they've misheard or they've misunderstood. And so if I don't engage in a dialogue with them, I can't find out what their misunderstanding is. So it's really kind of a dialogical process that I use, which means, you know, spending time with individual students um, and going closely over their work. And often it's like one of the first times ever that a student has had this type of experience 
where um, I go closely over how they're trying to communicate their ideas, but I'm, the focus is not on the ideas. And that's one of the issues I brought up in the beginning. Um, so many of my students say, well, they're writing classes, say all that matters is your ideas. And so then the teachers just kind of like guess what the ideas are, I guess, a lot of the times, because I have a lot of students who I really can't understand, you know, what they're trying to communicate because they have, you know, such um, limited um, use of like grammar or word choice or organization or structure. And so it's really like focusing not so much on the content, but on the formal aspects of communication. And I just think it's so interesting that in writing classes, they often don't do that. And it's kind of like, well, what's a writing class? I mean, why, why are we different from other classes? We are the only ones that really teach this. And if we don't do it, then no one's going to do it. And I think it's going to make it hard for students to be successful and to communicate. I often tell students, you know, when I've been on hiring committees or I've been in other jobs and hiring people, when someone writes, you know, they just make a grammatical mistake. Often people like think that they're, you know, not qualified for the job or they're not serious or they're not, you know, intelligent or they're not um, careful. And so um, it does have a social consequence. And so I think that when we abandon teaching it, we're kind of abandoning a major part of our job. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And it seems to be one of those characteristics of the humanities. If you put the humanities across from a, a subject like economics or other social sciences, or you put it across especially from the natural sciences, you... If you wanted to be pejorative, you can get the sense that, well, the people over in the humanities are a little bit lazy. <laughs> uh, you know, if you look at the workload of, a, let's say, a medical student compared to an English major, you start to feel like, well, the medical student is working harder. And, and, and if you add to that the point that uh, you're making here that, well, we're also stepping away from some of our most basic uh, teaching points, right? Grammar being one of them. It's it, it's really quite confusing because I find that well then what are if you if you want to call say in medicine the facts and the the content of their subject as being things that they must also go over in a rote learning sort of way or engage with you know meanly if you want to pick to pick up that idea um, why is it that we don't allow ourselves such topics um, such content such facts. Um, Rhetoric is full of different tropes. Grammar is full of rules. Just look at the Huddleston and Pullum um, grammar. I mean, it's 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 nigh on one thousand six hundred pages. There's a lot of information in there, <laughs> and if you walk away from it having studied it, you'll you'll write more logically for sure. I, I I guess what I'm driving at is what is it that's so distinct about the humanities? Why are they setting themselves apart like this? Well, I think in terms of writing itself, there's two different things going on. So one is, I think, you know, a lot, the vast majority of people teaching writing are um, part-time faculty, contingent faculty, non-tenure track faculty. And so the field has been looking for a way to increase its status in order to have like more tenure track faculty. You know, it's kind of a disciplinary strategy. And so one thing was to 
kind of um, turn to um, a set of new kind of uh, ideas that would make them similar to other research disciplines that have more prestige and status at the university. And so the focus on things like uh, metacognition, genre, transfer, um, these all help to build a discipline. But a lot of them have very little or nothing to do with, you know, like writing, word choice or organization, like the basic aspects of writing. And so I think like in, in a quest for professional status, there's been this desire to move away from like the teaching of grammar and the correction of grammar because it's seen as um, menial skill. It's seen as debasing. It's, it's a lot of work. It's um, the students often don't like it. So it's not going to help for student evaluations. Um, there's really not a lot of incentives to focus on this. And then the other aspect is that a lot of faculty, especially in the humanities, I think are, you know, upset with like the current politics or the current political, social environment. And so they're using their classroom as a kind of, uh, political representation of their ideal version of the world. And so in their ideal version of the world, you know, everyone is treated it's not treated equally necessarily, but, um, you know, they want to have everyone's voice heard. They want to affirm everyone's identity. And this moves against, you know, having a more shared universal or standardized um, system of language. If you're catering to every particular identity group and you're trying to create this multicultural world where every culture um, is given equal validity and reinforcement, then it's a political strategy and it's a political strategy. Instead of saying our goal is to treat everyone equally and fairly. Instead, the goal in this political strategy is to cater to particular um, cultural groups. And so it's a kind of a political choice. And I think that because they're not focusing on these kind of like consistent things that they could actually assess like grammar and word choice and structure um, once they move away from that, then they open up the door to focus more on political, social, social and cultural issues and to use the classroom as a type of, you know, political uh, socialization process. So it sounds like it's political on the micro and macro level and inside the university walls uh, to establish department reputation prestige, but also on the other end, which also has financial uh, repercussions, of course, but also on the other end, the larger society, as you're saying. Um, I, if, if we could get back to the discipline, though, it seems like... Um, I don't know, almost scandalous to send out people from writing courses who can't write. It would be like sending off a biologist who didn't understand the genetics of evolution. Um, you know, no de- biology department would ever decide against that. And it seems like, you know, the teachers of, of writing and some English departments, if that's where that happens as well, are okay with that, if I'm if I'm getting it right. Right. They're they often really rebel against this idea. Oh, students can't write. Well, they'll say, no, students write differently or like students, you know, have the right to their own language or, or, you know, there's more important things that they can learn in a writing class. And that, you know, and that you can't even teach writing. You can't teach grammar. It it never like lasts or they don't really learn it. So there's all these reasons not to do it. And so I just think that it's become, really like the dominant ideology. I mean, the other problem is so many of the people teaching writing 
are graduate students from other disciplines who really don't have a background on how to teach writing. And also, I don't think there's a lot of good information out there about effective ways of teaching grammar. I mean, like the method that I'm talking about is using individual dialogue and really trying to figure out what students are thinking. Um, That's rarely done. And so then the teaching of grammar, if you're just doing it by rote memorization, it's not going to work. You have to figure out what students understand and don't understand. And so I think because it's done been done poorly, there's a lot of evidence that you can't do it. And so then people have just given up on it. And then you have this political idea that even to try to impose or assess, you know, a shared grammatical system is a form of linguistic racism or white supremacy. And what really, really bothers me is like this lack of proportion, like to compare correcting, you know, a comma to, you know, the Ku Klux Klan, you know, call it white supremacy. I just think is so destructive. And I think that's a huge problem on the contemporary left is this kind of exaggeration, right, of like a lack of of proportion, you know, instead of saying, let's reform the police, let's abolish the police, you know, so that that rhetoric might have a good way of rallying the base, but it becomes alienating from everyone else. And it's also distorted, or just it distorts from like really being able to test reality and to think about things, you know, on a reality based level. And so you enter into this kind of rhetorical world of hyperbole and exaggeration and emotional manipulation. And you're trying to shame and guilt people who don't conform to your ideology. And so you've really left the, you know, field of, I would say, academic discourse, and you're entering into kind of a political emotional manipulation. It must be one of the first symptoms that you have left that, uh, as you were saying before, People were leaving courses, getting good grades, and then you were asking uh, back into the earlier courses and say, well, how was it that this person got the good grade? And they said, well, we know what they meant. And then I think that must be one of the first signs because, I mean, on a political level, I can't find anything more disenfranchising or patronizing than to imagine that you know what somebody meant when it's not clear. I mean, I would say that's the one side of it. But on the other hand, uh, you're clearly not dealing with facts. If you look at the sentence on the page and are saying, well, yeah, if you fill in, well, any reader could fill in anything, couldn't they? Right. And, and, but see, I think there's a problem. Like some of the faculty, you know, are non-tenured and they're, they're judged my, mainly often by student evaluations. And so... They have a tremendous um, motivation or incentive to not challenge the students or not correct the students or not judge the students. And so um, that's another reason not to you know, correct their grammar or, or say that you don't understand what they're saying or you know, really dive deeply into their ability to communicate because students don't want to be told that they're not being clear or that they can't be understood. And so... There's a lot of incentives for the faculty member to just um, basically ignore, you know, these issues that I think are fundamental to the teaching of writing. So on on an individual level, it may well be that there are all of those smaller incentives, but it seems to also be then converting or being taken up into, say, the four C's position of a, a broader ideology, so that that's individual faculty's position actually gets then justification in a, in a broader ideology, I would, I would say. Is that sound about right? Or Yeah. I mean, one of the things I'm currently writing a book about um, 
political ideologies from a psychological perspective. And, you know, and so I I'm clearly want to also critique the, the right, not just the left, but also the center, because I think a problem is a lot of liberals in the center, what I would call um, like centrist liberals, you might say, um, they're they really want to look good and they want people to think they're good people. And you get this kind of virtue signaling. And so they often conform to these really bad ideas. So they often just take up this idea. Like I was recently at a meeting and a faculty member said, you know, um, grading is violence, you know, and I was just like, well, it's also part of our job. And it's kind of hard to imagine if we just, you know, I have a lot of issues with grading and I, I do believe that it's often, you know, counterproductive, but, you know, right as it currently stands, this is a big part of the academic structure. And and just equate grading with violence, I think, once again, is this kind of emotional, hyperbolic language. And it really, um, but I think a lot of liberals in the center, because they want to be, they want to see themselves as good and they want other people to recognize them, them as good. So it's kind of virtue signaling is to conform to some of these more, you know, extreme um, arguments on the left. And they also don't want to be targeted as someone from the right. And so they don't want to actually question these things. So often I'm at a meeting. I went to this conference on um, diversity, equity, inclusion, right when I started writing the book. And it was so interesting because no one was challenging any of these ideas that, you know, the teaching of grammar is inherently racist in a form of white supremacy and the teaching of, you know, reason or science is racist and, you know, inherently a form of white supremacy. And, and I was just like, okay, well, you know, why is no one challenging these ideas? Partially they're afraid of, you know, being attacked, but I think more so like they want to kind of um, show their virtue and their goodness by signaling that they conform to these ideas because these ideas are often posed from a moral perspective, like it's, you know, immoral to impose a form of language on other people and it's going to exclude them and it's going to hurt them. And so it's, it's being represented in a kind of, you know, neo-religious language. How much might this be um, a product of some of the, let's say, younger faculties, perhaps the 30 to 40 age group um, of their own educations on two ends. I mean, they would have been perhaps the generation that would have also experienced such teaching as we're talking about now, no grammar. So, I mean, if you're taught little grammar, how much grammar do you know? But secondly, in their upbringings, um, if they were being brought up in the late 80s to 90s, they might well have also experienced themselves the self-esteem culture that you were talking about. So it could well be... and again, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, that they are a product of the way that they've been educated, if you like. Oh, yeah, there's a totally, I see a, a big generational divide and a generational conflict. And so um, I think that is a huge issue that somehow, especially like the left has become you know, more and more um, centered on identity politics and political correctness and and using these processes of like cancel cancel culture or deplatforming, so using these processes that are really borrowed from like you know religious shunning and religious organizations, and and so I think yeah the generation that grew up on that plus the self esteem movement and the general like consumer culture that is catering to the you know isolated individual and the new technologies all these things I think 
feed into it and reinforce these perspectives. But at the same time, we have a more and more global culture, a globalized world. And, you know, one of the things, I mean, the other half of my book is like, I really focused on, I was teaching a seminar on global progress. And I was very influenced by Steven Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, where he documents, you know, that, you know, if you look at global averages, right, the, the average lifespan globally has doubled in the last 200 years. And people have never, you know, lived longer, healthier, had more rights, had more freedoms, had more free time, um, we're more literate, you know, than than now. Even though we're living in this pandemic, it's not so clear. But you know, largely due to science and technological developments and capitalism and democratic law, um, we've really had this incredible progress. I mean, for most of human history, people lived on average around thirty years, or at least for the last like twenty thousand years. And so it's amazing that it's like doubled. And and so I think it'd be hard to like say that's not a good thing. And so if that's a good thing, then what has caused it? And what has caused it, I think, in many ways are exactly these things that people are now rebelling against, you know, scientific reason, democratic equality, um, economic opportunity. And so I think that there's a real problem, you know, as our universities become more global and we have a more global student body, we have to find a way of trying to, you know, develop this kind of common culture and this need to communicate across cultures. And I think going into our own identity groups is going to be counterproductive. I would like uh, to talk about the productive methods that you use. You've mentioned them already. Um, they, they appear at the end of the first chapter. They're the more one-on-one consultation method of teaching grammar. Um, I found interesting this idea because I encounter as well. I, I teach here in Germany, as my listeners will know, at the writing program in Heidelberg. And um, I encounter it as well, the idea of there's rules, there's things you can and can't do. There's a right and a wrong way, and you've got to watch out, right? So this would be, in my view, and it seems to reflect in what you were saying earlier, of how very many novice writers view the process of actually trying to put their thoughts into grammar and form them into sentences and to a larger discourse and so on. I wonder what you would say to the unlearning process, if that's also a fair way of putting it, that has to go on on that individual level. So that grammar becomes actually the means for them to be able to know what they're thinking, to be able to communicate what they're thinking. Well, for like a lot of students who have say writer's block or have a difficult time writing, you know, I often ask them, you know, to just write down as many thoughts as they can, even as just a list of things that they want to talk about or ideas that they have, and then try to find like some way of grouping these ideas together. And then at the end, trying to create, you know, order and logic through grammar and through like transitions and through organization. Um, and so kind of separate the process so that they get their thoughts on paper or on their computer screen. And then they try to, you know, organize them. But ultimately they do have to know like certain rules that are either right or wrong. I mean, they do often have this kind of relativistic and this is another cultural thing idea that, you know, there's no right way that every teacher has a different way of doing grammar and they're often like often like very concerned about APA style versus MLA style when it really only has to do with like citations and, you know, works cited and 
very limited, but they think like there's these massively different ways of writing. And I think one problem in the field of writing is the focus on genre. Um, what happened was people were saying, well, you write differently in different disciplines. And so they forgot about the more common ideas of writing, the more generalized like grammar and word choice and organization and structure. And they focus more on this idea that people write very differently in different disciplines. And so then you lose any type of uniformity or any way of bringing together the field and to have a shared common discourse. And you open it up to this idea that, oh, there's no shared rules. There's no shared way of writing that it's, you know, different and different. It's radically different with each context and discipline. And I think that's a very postmodern thing, this notion that, yeah, um, communication changes radically according to the context. That's a, that's a lot that you've said there because I would I would totally agree, especially here in Europe, that the idea of uh, the genre as the decisive factor. Okay, well, who are you writing for? In what format? And what is your purpose in that format? So the research article in a natural science, let's say, that really decides the entire objectives of a writing course, and it's the only way that materials in very many universities over here are actually put together. The moves are broken down sentence for sentence or passage for passage and um, word lists are given as the as the preferred or most frequent uh, for this particular genre or even this subgenre and so on and so forth. So you you'll be swimming against the the current, I think, with with your idea there. What, what would be one of your, let's say, strongest arguments to take the wind out of these people's sails? Well, if they don't know how to, like, you know, put a sentence together or connect two sentences together or construct a paragraph, and it does, it's not going to matter that much if they know the fine points of a particular genre or what have you. I mean, if they don't have the foundations, it's going to be hard for them to um, apply those foundations to a very particular context. And it's often much easier to learn, like, the particular constraints of a specific genre um, than to first, you know, have a strong foundation of simply, you know, the basics of how to communicate, how to write, how to use grammar. And um, yeah, I just think that once again, I think it, for a professional, for develop the field of writing, for professional um, prestige, um, it, the idea of genre is very s seductive because it makes it seem like writing is, is a much more intellectual field or it's, it's much more similar to the other, you know, highly prestigious disciplines. But I think um, it's a misleading idea and you lose this um, focus on the foundational aspects. Yeah, I think you hit a really important point there when you say that in a sense, it's easier and it seems more effective. And I guess that's why courses designed around the genre with these word lists and these moves and these wonderful corpuses and so on, you know, they, they really impress people. And it's hard to impress people with, okay, well, you know, adjectives, let's go through them. <laughs> I mean, and the, and the effectiveness is not, let's say, immediately apparent. But uh, I would say one of the dangers of doing that is you get people doing the, the, uh, purely the genre approach is um, you get people communicating by fragments. And what I mean by that is the phrases and words that have stuck with them, whether it's through teaching or whether it's through their own engagement with, let's say, a research article in biology, 
And these fragments seem to pertain to the topic at hand, but they just come so readily. They're like volunteers to the writer that, I mean, in actual fact, they they seldom actually know what they're saying. I mean, if you pick up any, even published uh, research article in um, any of the natural sciences, you can see that very, very many of the phrasings and sentences are, are shoddily built. And in some cases, so shoddily built that even without expert knowledge, you can start to question, you know, the logic of what's actually being said there. And this is this is a really unfortunate product of of the way that we're teaching things. I would say. Yeah, I often run into this issue is that um, I I read a lot of um, articles that have been submitted to um, or for journals or books, you know, to be a reviewer and. Often, you know, these very sophisticated writers or, you know, who are, you know, uh, I guess successful in their field, you know, just are just really bad writers in the sense like, you know, it's very hard to understand what they're saying. They, they don't know the basic grammar rules. They're using the word word wrong prepositions. They're like, it's, you know, they, they really, you know, have like just a very like, they have problems with very basic writing stuff. And so, you know it's always an issue, you know, how do you respond to that? But the real issue, the thing is like people just haven't been taught it and and they've never been held accountable for it. So they're not going to learn it on their own. I mean, that's why I like to use the dialogical method of engaging with people closely over their writing and asking them, you know, what were they thinking at the time to figure out what exactly, you know, what ideas they have in their head about like, you know, what rules there are or what structures there are and, um, and so I think that's, it's labor intensive, but I think it's the only way to do it. I think labor intensive is a key word here, because I think that also what's happening in these, you know, expert fields, whether no matter what the, you know, the branch, whether it's humanities, social sciences, natural sciences. And when you see writing, as you've just said, that you have to review and it's just, Ooh, wow. The words are everywhere. The sentences, you can't piece them together. Um, I think some of what's going on is that there is clearly this separation of ideas from form. I mean, that seems to have also been the initial occasion that allowed many of the people in the four C's, for instance, to say, well, that we're focusing on the ideas as if you could, you know, only. And I mean, if there is that established culture in many disciplines where it's really the content that matters, I mean, my biologists tell me it's the figures that matter, right? Then the you know, you privilege that end of the communication and the writing is just a writing up. But I think that the second point that's here, and I mean, please comment on both, is that it's precisely that. It's labor intensive. It's hard work, not just on the teaching end, but to write a text well. I mean, I hardly have to tell you, (laughs) you know, it takes a lot of effort. Right. And, you know, so I did my um, PhD. I did two PhDs. The first one I did... um, in France, the second one in the United States. And the one I did in French was, you know, several hundred pages in French. And I had like a hearing for my dissertation defense. It was like a public hearing. And, you know, the first one guy just covered like the grammar and stuff and, you know, questioned by, you know, translation of German and Latin and, you know, whatever. And it was like, so like, you know, you don't find that like that much in America. And I think, you know, one reason is like, say in my department, you're just not going to get great student evaluations if you are correcting students' papers closely and you're assessing them and giving them grades based on those assessment. There's so many incentives to look the other way and to just praise students and to not try to actually, you know, 
help them confront particular issues in their writing. And so it's, there's just not a lot of incentives to do it now. It goes against the culture and it kind of goes against the kind of reward system. And it would seem, yeah, that hard work is rather unpopular, just as no content is rather unpopular. This is a point that uh, surfaces again and again in your chapters of, well, what is it that you do then with content in in the teaching of writing? Um, it would seem that most writing courses put content front and center, and we end up with a, you know, a, a sort of political discussion going on in most classes. But uh, you you talk about deprioritizing content. Can you maybe comment a bit on that? Well, yeah, I mean, so I do believe that you can't just teach in an empty form. So there has to be some content in the course. I think like writing classes, you know, looking at rhetorical strategies is a way of having a content in the course, but a content that is directly related to the writing process. So being able to, you know, critically examine the use of, you know, pathos, logos, and ethos in the in a movie or in a written document, I think it allows you to talk about content, but to do it from a more formal perspective. So once again, I always ask myself, what makes this class different from another class? Like if I'm teaching writing and film, well, why is my class different from just a class in film studies? And what's different about it is the focus on the more formal aspects, meaning the content is de-emphasized, but we're still looking at the content, but we're approaching it by looking at the way, you know, from a rhetorical perspective. And then we're also looking at, you know, what you're actually writing and how you're writing about that rhetorical process. And so I try to remove it from just like the level of ideas, you know. And so it's very interesting. A lot of times when I'm asking students, why do you say you have a comma here or, or not a comma here or something? They always say, oh, because it's a different idea. And so they, they, they always go back to this notion of ideas. And I say, well, when's an idea begin and when's an idea end? You know, what is, you know, how do you define an idea? And, and kind of the point is that it's just so much easier to talk about ideas than these other things. Uh-huh. So it's something you somehow get your head around. You can get your hands on uh, the ideas. And, and with, I just wonder why it is that we can't make grammar also into an idea. Well, I mean, you're, on one hand, I do kind of understand this need to try to distinguish content and form because, or ideas from their structure or, or logic or presentation. I think that is a, a good pedagogical move or method. It gets very confusing if you don't do that. And so I do think that separation can be important. Um, the problem is, like, it's moved all about, moved all towards the ideas and away from like the formal aspects. Yeah. yeah. I would like uh, to turn to the last chapter, and this seems to have been uh, Enlightenment Now, the book, uh, which is the focus of the uh, chapter, seems to have been, uh, not seems to, was clearly a, a major turning point for you. I mean, you say also in the conclusion that it really gave a whole new direction to the sort of research you had intended to do in, uh, on this area and uh, was quite influential. You cite also the reasons why you've mentioned some of these, but basically that um, the virtues of reason and science and secularism have advanced us and they've also brought us past the alternatives that humankind had, let's say, before the modern era. That's one of the, 
I would say, principal arguments in the book and seems to have influenced uh, you quite closely. Uh, you turned, though, uh, more critical also later of uh, Steven Pinker, and um, that gets into the politics of what it is that, or how he's expressing himself anyway. Could you perhaps encapsulate that that argument? So there's actually a lot of thinkers now that are very similar, like someone like Sam Harris, but a lot of people that have um, a lot of these podcasts that are very popular now, um, where on one hand, <clears throat> they do kind of, you know, they're very critical of the left. They're, they are sometimes critical of the right, but not always. Um, but they do kind of point to, um, you know, like the need for science, for facts, for reason, for like liberal equality. But then they so focused on attacking the left that they don't realize how in order to have like universal human rights, um, you you have to have groups fighting for their inclusion into that universal. So you need like women's rights, civil rights, gay rights. All of these have um, been, they've been like social movements of the left that have helped to, ex- to expand who's covered under the terms of democratic equality. So there is a dialectic between, you could say, the left and this kind of global progress. And so what often happens like with Steven Pinker is he completely like ignores the fact that, you know, people have had to fight for these rights and that the, we can't just get rid of and demonize these social movements and think that science is just going to happen on its own or progress is going to happen on its own. It, it is often like people organized together fighting for justice or fighting for inclusion or fighting for like more equal rights or more benefits. And so you really need this dialectic between, you could say, the left and what I'm calling like liberal global progress. Um, And so often, too often, there is this just demonization of the left without realizing the important roles that social movements on the left have played in global progress. But the flip side is, you know, a lot of things I've talked about is this notion of neutrality and that this is a key aspect, like trying to be a neutral judge, both in science, trying to judge the evidence from a neutral perspective, but also like in democratic law, the judge being a neutral judge of evidence. And even though this is often not achieved, it is the ideal, it's the necessary but impossible ideal that we strive towards. And, and so we shouldn't just get rid of that ideal. And so interesting, this notion of neutrality, like I have a chapter on neutrality in the classroom and a lot of writing faculty now say that teachers should come into class with a very, you know, um, strong political perspective that they announce to the class and that neutrality is impossible and that you shouldn't try to be objective and neutral, but that you should always have like a strong partisan viewpoint that you openly present to your students and that your identity group should shape your perspective and that you should make that identity group clear to your students and that we, you should affirm the identity identities of your students. And the problem is if we want to focus on, global equality and fairness and neutrality, particular identities often are in conflict with that. And so within the classroom, I think it's really important to focus on, you know, neutrality, equality, and reason. And we see this with the COVID thing, you know, it's really, you know, we need science, we need clear communication, we need like truth, we need reality testing. And when we just base things on ideology 
or on emotion or on our particular group, then we run into these conspiracy theories. We run into these people who go against you know, the consensus of science and people die because of it. So it has real life consequences. And your chapter on neutrality brings in uh, Freud in a extremely useful way, I found. And also, well, I wouldn't say provocative, but certainly it caught my attention when you say that uh, knowledge proceeding from the expert, and in this case, you might say uh, the politics proceeding from the teacher who has at least the authority in the classroom, is always somehow unconvincing or it feels imposed. And this, this I found, was one of those like basic explanations of why we must teach. And teaching, as you make the case throughout the book, uh, demands an, a neutral approach to the subject and to the learner as well. Yeah, I think, you know, what key to academic discourse, and I think we don't often teach the principles of academic discourse. And I think there are moral principles. And one is, you know, this need to be objective and neutral and truthful and honest. And it becomes very difficult, especially from an academic perspective, when we give up on the possibility of neutrality, or at least the effort to be equal or fair or honest or truthful. And instead, we focus on political manipulation. And one of the things I point out is even if students conform to the teacher, they're often doing it in a cynical way that it's not really going to affect them. They're just trying to get a good grade. So they're going to give to the teacher what the teacher wants. It might make them even believe less in what the teacher is trying to you know, convince them on a political level. So I think that it's really counterproductive. And if we want universities to still be these institutions that promote science and reason, um, then we can't allow them to be politicized and from a particular partisan perspective. I have to return once more, though, to uh, Steven Pinker, because uh, Steven Pinker's quotations also in the book show that Steven Pinker has also a particular view on style. And this gets us clearly to the point of ideas, meeting grammar, and how you express yourself. You cite a few of the points where his tone becomes extremist or hyperbolic. And I wonder if there could be a connection there between his views on writing and his views on politics and the way that he expresses himself. No, it's very interesting because I've written a lot about Steven Pinker and I go back and forth because, you know, I was very inspired by his book Enlightenment Now, but it does have these very kind of extreme kind of hyperbolic um, examples and use of rhetoric and language. And so, and his main argument is that, you know, reason is a driving force behind global progress and that we need to you know, promote basically social policy based on reason. And then he has these completely unreasonable passages. And I think that part of it is just kind of the lack of awareness of his own rhetoric and, and you know, his own, um, the way that he tries to manipulate people through his use of language. And you often find this in the sciences and, you know, he does a lot of evolutionary psychology is this just complete lack of awareness of the power of language and, and the power of rhetoric. And so one of the flip sides is like this focus now on the brain sciences and in evolutionary psychology is they want to say that, you know, most of what we think and feel is derived 
from biology, from natural selection. And so they kind of ignore culture, language, rhetoric, history. And so I think that is a big you know, blind spot on his part and a lot of other contemporary thinkers is to maintain this kind of dialectic, to realize, yes, we want reason, but we have to look at the reasons why we're not reasonable. And we have to look at how we manipulate and try to influence other people through rhetoric. And so it's really important to learn, like I try to think about rhetoric, you know, as mostly a psychological manipulation and to then it's important to teach students the way that language is often used to manipulate other people psych- psychologically, you know, through the way that language is conveyed. So it's just unexpected to imagine that, you know, somebody like Steven Pinker, who's studied language for so long, who's who's written a book about style, the sense of style would not see that. Do you think he's focusing then in on the the grammar sides of things, um, what you would then, what, what we would then call the logos and, and missing these other aspects that can be conjured through um, the use of, well, just good communication, because we can't deny that he's communicating well. Yeah, I, I just think that he's blind to a particular aspect of his personality and of his politics, and that he is so... Um, determined to fight the left that he kind of loses track of his own reason and logic. And he kind of, you know, ends up in this kind of mirroring relationship where he, you know, responds to the extremes of the left with his own extremes. And so then there's this kind of almost like right wing backlash rhetoric that pops up like a lot of his examples, you know, saying it's Stalin-esque what's going on in the campuses that's right out of like Fox News. And so it's so strange that he, you know, returns to this kind of hyperbolic um, discourse from the right in order to counter the hyperbolic discourse of the left. Hmm. Well, uh, Bob, you've been very generous with your time, um, but I do have one last question. Um, clearly, the liberal globalist uh, position is going to cause some pushback. Um, you've even implied as much in, in, in the conversation so far. What would you say to our listeners and what would you say to your readers to help them make their pushback rather into actually a counter argument? Well, it's difficult because on one hand, if I'm saying that you know we should focus on logic and reason, it seems like I'm saying that we should ignore emotion, but What I'm also saying is that we should really think about how emotion is manipulated through language and and how the role that language plays in communication. And so the problem is you want to have is having a more complex argument where it's not just either or, but in our current kind of debate culture, it seems like everything often comes into this very polarized either or discourse. And so it's difficult to figure out how to get people who are not already on your side to listen to you. And I think that's a general problem we have within culture and society, at least in the United States, is to, you know, how to open up this space where people can try to judge arguments based on facts and their merit and their logic and not on some predetermined ideological investment. Is there a rhetoric also to listening? 
we've talked a lot. I mean, the, the rhetoric of speaking or writing is clear, but um, I wonder if it's applicable also on the other end of the line of communication. Well, I think when we're teaching students like how to analyze something rhetorically, we're also, you know, helping them to think about how to listen to other people or to other discourses. And so I think that um, that is a big part of it. But um, it's difficult because the centrist argument is, oh, let's just take a little bit of both sides and find some happy common ground. But if both sides are wrong, combining them together is not going to help you. And so we do want to escape like polarization, but the um, example is not just to say, oh, we all agree, we're all, you know, we all understand each other. Um, And so I think that is the challenge and the difficulty, but trying to depoliticize the classroom, I think is one step in that direction to create a space where it's not, you know, all arguments are not determined by what team you're on or what identity group you're part of or what political agenda you have and trying to create. And that's why I kind of like grammar. Grammar is kind of like politically neutral in a sense that because it's, you know, often disconnected from, you know, ideas and ideology, um, it offers a space for people to think about like the logical structure of language and how different um, thoughts or ideas connect to each other and relate to each other but it focuses on those connections and relationships and not necessarily the content. All right. Well, thank you very much. That is Robert Samuels and his book, Teaching Writing, Rhetoric and Reason at the Globalizing University is out this year with Routledge. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Bob. Goodbye. Thank you very much. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.